from Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zinn Rogers. This is Film Club, a podcast series where our youth film critics and cultural connoisseurs spill the theoretical tea on a new movie. So these are spoiler-filled conversations, folks. Be prepared to learn far more about them than the trailers will tell you. In this episode, we're back in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The sequel reflects real life as the people of Wakanda mourn the loss of their king T'Challa, played by Chadwick Boseman, who passed away in 2020. The future of Wakanda is again at risk with the introduction of Namor, the king of an underwater nation of people. As T'Challa's people confront this new foe, the question remains, who will take up the mantle of Black Panther? Our Atme film buffs got together on Zoom to talk about the movie, how it honored the legacy of Chadwick Boseman, the themes of colonialism within the story, and where the Marvel Universe seems headed from there. Here is their discussion, led by Atme producer, Rowie McCohen. All right. Hi, everybody. My name's Rowie. I am so excited for this roundtable. Thank you so much for joining me. Would you guys mind introducing yourselves super quickly? All right. I'm Ormond DeLois. I may not have seen the first Black Panther, but that did not make this one any less enjoyable. I love it. My name is Logan Tyler Smith, and I have seen both Black Panther movies as of this taping, if we can call it a taping. Uh, and I liked the first one, and I liked this one, and we'll get more into our thoughts as this goes on. We absolutely will. So let's just jump in. First of all, what did you guys think about Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Personally, I really, really liked it. I thought it was really interesting. I still haven't, I saw it maybe three weeks ago, and I still haven't really had time to like fully digest it do you know what I mean I should go watch it the second or third time but I I think I don't know we'll get into this a lot later but um the way that it handles grief and loss both inside and outside of the movie screen the like the industry and the actual characters inside the movie that goes through so much loss um I think they handled it pretty gracefully um and with an amount of poise that I haven't seen from the MCU in a pretty long time so those are just my thoughts I agree like the it's portrayal of grief was so good like it showed the inside and out of grief as you put it and all of that stuff when Marvel leans into that sincerity I think that's usually where Marvel signs uh Marvel shines. But the problem is that even though that is really, really good, at the same time, it makes the obligatory CGI action scenes feel a little jarring and a little stapled on by comparison. And that was a problem with the first movie, too. So it's not like a problem that's, you know, unique to this movie. It happens in pretty much all Marvel movies where it's made by committee and unsurprisingly unfinished shots will end up in the movie. But that being said, the core story worked really well and also served as a good backdoor pilot to Ironheart, which I'm pretty excited about. So I guess they're doing something, right? Yeah. And my favorite part of Wakanda Forever is that nearly everything that happens is unpredictable. There's so many twists and turns that you never expect and... Even for a Marvel film, I was blown away. Even for Marvel films that are known to have really entertaining twists and turns, Conda Forever's twists and turns were stunning. That's a really interesting. I haven't heard much of that about this film. I'd love to be able to talk with you about that. So what worked for you guys for this film and what didn't work? Well, uh, I already kind of laid all those out a little bit. Like the CGI action scenes, like even though I think for the most part they can be engaging and suspenseful, especially when it's on the big screen because everything looks better on the big screen. Logan said it first. No, I didn't. 
But the idea is that the CGI action scenes, like they can be exciting in the moment, but compared to much better action scenes, they're 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 just stapled on. Like they don't have like the energy or engagement of something like a John Wick movie, which I'm not going to talk too much about. But they're not like as well staged, and as a result, they can be kind of forgettable. But as I said earlier, the core story of dealing with grief and like just the actual narrative events that were happening. Those were tough. Those were great. Uh, and also, not to mention, it's a nice send-off to Chadwick Boseman. I thought that was really nice to send-off. And it was faithful to the comics, because uh, the character Shuri uh, in the comics did actually briefly become Black Panther for a little bit while T'Challa was indisposed. So that is like canon. That has happened in the comics. So I'm glad that they were faithful to the comics and that the story was, for the most part, Really good, and also they played Namor's. Uh, <laughs> they played Namor's uh, flying feet very straight to the comics, which I thought was fun because comics have always been silly in a good way. And uh, they maybe made one or two jokes, but for the most part, it was played sincerely because that is his character in the comics, and it works. I would say what worked for me is that. As I said before, you, you don't expect things to happen when they do. Uh, there's, as in most Marvel movies, there is a really interesting moment that makes you glued to the screen, wanting to know what's happening when the protagonists are in their darkest hour. You have no idea if they're going to be saved and how they're going to be saved. You don't know how anybody good or bad, is going to win. And that's really exciting in that moment. But what didn't work for me is adding to uh, what Logan said, namely the fight scenes. I do think instead of having three or four okay fight sequences, I think I would rather they had just one that was maybe a bit longer, but not so much longer that it takes up too much of the movie yeah i would definitely agree with that i think the mcu i feel has really gone down in quality in everything that it once stood for do you know what i mean like you would go to mcu movies for superhero movies and superhero movies often have a lot of fight sequences and then the mcu just stopped Either they stopped caring about it or they stopped having the time to care about it. Um, and I'm leaning probably more towards the second one because I think everyone at those studios are overworked and underpaid probably, um, which makes it very difficult for them to put the care into MCU movies that they used to which is probably why we're seeing such a decline in the quality of CGI and fight scenes and honestly, good movies, you know? Like, I think that sort of complaint of poor fight scenes, poor choreography or poor CGI can be applied to almost any phase four movie that's come out of the Marvel Studios, which is really unfortunate um, but yeah, it's something that has ha happened and it will continue to happen and it happened in this movie. At the same time, though, I don't really think it's like a problem that's unique to phase four of the MCU. I think that the MCU is always kind of, with a handful of exceptions, because the fight scenes in the Winter Soldier are generally very well choreographed. And in Civil War, we got a big epic super smash road style fight with all the superheroes but beyond that like i think the problem is that uh they if you compare the first avengers movie uh to say avengers infinity ward you can really see the difference between like that iconic like circular dolly around the heroes as we see them all in full frame compared to infinity war where they just po pose very briefly and then discharge at each other like, I think that we don't really, we haven't really, at least since the first Avengers movie, even when we've had the fight scenes, I don't really think we've had, like, iconic imagery. So I think I added to or answered your question, I would hope. 
but I don't I don't think it's like a problem unique to phase four but I do agree phase four it is a leftover problem from Marvel Studios just in general yeah no I see I see what you mean how did you guys feel about this movie's testament to Chadwick Boseman well I mentioned earlier I thought that it was a nice little send-off to that actor who there's actually a great moment in Wakanda Forever where the queen and Shuri are talking and uh, they talk about how he suffered in silence uh, apparently like the character which is not all that dissimilar to how Chadwick Boseman was like going through I could be wrong about this but apparently he was going through like actual cancer while filming uh, Black Panther and the idea that T'Challa would do that also also seems very in character with the actor and whether it's in with the actor or the character it was nice to show that they accepted him flaws and all which flaws would be working through a deadly uh deadly illness while uh filming this stuff and even flaw i'm using it a little generously there but i do think it was a nice send off like kind of grieve through the loss of a really good pick for black panther all things considered so, yeah, I thought it was a good send-off, and it's one of the most sincere and best parts of the movie for me. I agree. I do like T'Challa's send-off. A little... I hesitate to call it a pet peeve or something because, again, it's not bad, not a big deal. I kind of want to know what happened to T'Challa, but also at the same time, they always say a magician never reveals his secrets. So it's not really important or, or urgent for me to know how, how T'Challa died. So I want to know, but also I might never know. And that's okay. Yeah, I agree. I think definitely cried in theaters. <laughs> so um, if that says anything about how they handled it, I think... I think they did a really good job and I said this in the beginning, but I think it was um, a really nice tribute to someone who we lost, we, the audience, lost both on screen and off. Um, and I thought it was a really great way to honor him because yeah, they've done like the little thingy that he does um, in the opening credit sequences. Um, that was a tribute to him, especially when he first passed away um, and they've continued that. But it was really powerful to see how the people closest to T'Challa responded to a very similar um, loss. How did you guys feel about Shuri taking over the mantle of Black Panther? I mentioned this earlier, but you know, it's canon, like it has happened in the comics, although under different circumstances. But overall, I thought she transitioned and filled the role very nicely, uh, if, if that makes sense, or I hope that doesn't sound weird. But I thought she was great as the new Black Panther, which is to be expected when she's playing that character from the comics, so... Yeah, when that happened, when I was watching it in the theater, I said to myself, I didn't know this would happen, but I, I do want to know if Shuri can carry this. And I, and I wasn't sure. And then it happened, and I said, oh, oh yeah, Shuri can definitely carry this. Yeah, I, it, this, I had the same reaction, honestly. Finding out that Shuri was going to be the next Black Panther, especially with her whole narrative arc in the film of like am I actually going to be able to continue this am I going to continue my brother's legacy of peace or am I going to follow in the footsteps of my cousin who wanted to take over the world um which was like oh, maybe don't do that one uh, uh that being said I did really enjoy that whole vision of the villain from the first Black Panther movie that was very enlightening to Shuri's character of who she wanted to become, but who she actually did become by the end of it, uh, at least subconsciously. There's a lot going on there, and I love that. I, yeah, 
I don't think they explored the spirit realm question mark um as well as uh, not as well as much as they could have in the first Black Panther movie um Armin to plug your ears if you want to but um T'Challa sees his father in the first one and so I just kind of assumed that it was whoever you took the mantle from um or your parents or something like that so I was like oh my god she's gonna see her mom she can ask her mom nope that was crazy um and it was a really really interesting thing to do to sort of compare Shuri who we always have assumed is maybe not the most traditional but definitely stays true to her family and the kingdom see her almost aligning like barely going past aligning with Killmonger and his values was insane um and it really is a testament to I actually don't know where I was going with that <laughs> it was just a really fun plot point for me um and I think Shuri is going to be a fantastic Black Panther even if she's not the queen of Wakanda for a long time because she's carrying on that mantle okay I have my thoughts on Namor and his intentions and the way that he interacts with Shuri in particular but what were your guys's thoughts on him and what he was trying to do I mean I've always liked the idea I don't know if Marvel invented or popularized this could be the latter the idea that the villain isn't like in a, a Disney movie say he's not just doing villainous things for the sake of it through his eyes he's a hero he's doing the right thing and that's not even the first marvel movie that's done that obviously gotta address the elephant in the room being thanos what he did i won't say it in detail what he did he believes it was the right thing to do and that's how i also feel about namor to an extent I also feel that that mindset kind of could have warranted him making a pact with Wakanda. There's another thing I didn't expect to happen, but when it did, I thought, that's nice. That's nice. At the same time, though, like, I do agree with that. Like, I think that you cannot. If you're screenwriting or just writing a villain in general, you cannot think of them as the villain. Like the villain needs to have some sort of compelling reason to like cause the conflict with the hero, and you can't always label it as good and bad. And in stories, sometimes the villain does win. But in this case, I do think that Namor was, for the most part, he at least felt that he was justified, and that made him a compelling villain. And what's really cool about this, I love this interpretation of Namor because they describe him as like, uh, I forget what tribe he's from, but the idea that he, uh, when he came back, he like saw the worst of humanity basically when he came back from the water uh, and discovered like colonialists, I think that's the word. And uh, it was messed up. And if you read the comics, Namor's first interactions with surface people in the comics were with Nazis. So that kind of is an adequate translation of just the terrible side of humanity he was exposed to early on. So that kind of justifies Namor's view of, you know, humanity kind of sucks. Uh, and obviously, I personally don't agree that all of humanity sucks, and I don't think anyone in this roundtable does. Uh, but I do think that it is easy to sympathize with the villain if you understand their motivation. So I'm kind of agreeing with all of you as an umbrella. And yet at the same time, we can't completely sympathize with Namor because the logic behind what he does, if memory serves, that is a measure called thinking the ends justify the means. Right. And, and you can sympathize with Namor as much as you want, but in the end, that's I, I think that's what his mindset was. So, and we know for a fact through history, anyone with that mindset never really 
never really wins anything. Oh, great. Wholeheartedly. Definitely. And I see what you mean. I think the idea of having Namor, his first real interactions with humanity at large, quote unquote humanity at large, were just after his mother dies and he interacts with colonizers who are enslaving the people that were living amongst them or were their neighbors or something like that. These people who call him have something to do with hell or he's going to hell or something like that they say that to him at some point in Spanish and these people who he can so easily defeat but are they are actively the worst people to exist on the planet um, at that time and for a very long time that is the worst way to be introduced to our that earth's people is the worst and it really sets up his the way that he he his mindset going forward his interactions with the surface world and his interactions with shori and the wakandans and how he truly believes that they will do anything to kill him which is crazy but he certainly has the experience to say that what he's thinking is true. And I think, Armand, you're also right. He does believe that he is the hero. And he believes that he can do and will do anything to protect his people. Which, as a leader, probably something that you should do. However, there are things that you can work around. Um, to prevent mass murder from happening. And I think he didn't really get to that part of the sort of uh, political process. Maybe he dropped out of the class or something like that. But what happens, happens. And it even resonates with us pretty strongly too as the audience because this has happened in real life, not just in real, but in real life many times over. So that adds a real little punch to the whole thing of Namor's story. He also, I think it's really interesting how he and T'Challa are compared against each other because Namor feels this very strong need to protect his people and protect the way that they live and protect their livelihoods which are the same thing, I guess, protect their livelihoods. T'Challa felt the same way, but he also wanted to be able to share their resources with the outside world because he was such a giving person. He hadn't been wronged by society at large, or if he had, he was able to move past it. Namor couldn't do that, which is why Namor is sort of set up like a villain character or like someone that we don't necessarily want to interact with because of the way that he is so unforgiving about public relations really interactions with the surface world and fiercely protecting his own people it is worth noting that in the comics he's less of a villain or hero and way more of an anti-hero i agree um Circling back to the Thanos thing, because I think Ormond brought up Thanos. Um, did you guys have any questions floating around in your head uh, while you were watching the movie about what Namor has been doing this whole time and why he hasn't intervened at all with the battle against Thanos, especially because Thanos' snap would have affected his people too. And as we've just set up, he only wants to protect his people. So why didn't he come up to the surface when half of his people just suddenly disappeared? I think it was a similar case to uh, what Wakanda would have been beforehand, uh, before the events of Black Panther. I think it's one of those things where they wanted to be as isolated as possible. And as we all know, in Infinity War, by this point, Black Panther has already started the Wakandan outreach uh, centers by the end of that movie potential spoiler alert 
not that it matters. Uh, but basically, I think he was in just a different place than T'Challa was. So therefore, he just didn't interact with the surface world. Doesn't matter that half my population was cold mysteriously. What uh, the important thing is, they came back right where they belonged. Or at least that's how I imagine Namor's thought process was. Although I do admit it would have helped to have a little small piece of dialogue about the blip, which is the event of Infinity War to happen. Well, one common argument I see in when large amounts of people today die over a crisis, a very popular argument is that it happened because God made it happen. And this is important because I think there are some very small but noticeable religious traits in Namor's place. I, I think I don't think Namor is, shall we say, dim-witted enough to dismiss the possibility or, or the reality of half his species disappearing. But I do think he could have attributed it not to coincidence, but to the doing of a higher power that he need not interfere with. And I will admit, in the movie, they do kind of say that. Namor's people do look to him as a god for the most part. They do say that for a split second. And uh, largely because of his winged feet and all that, uh, to my understanding. And they do specifically say, he specifically says about himself that he is a mutant, which brings a whole bunch of X-Men possibilities to the universe. But also, I think it kind of adds to the fact that his people view him as a god. So maybe he can be like, there's a power greater than me or something like that. Adding on to Orman's point. And we know about gods if we've seen Thor. Or, I mean, like, you could even consider, like, obviously this is an Eternals reference, and I don't know how <laughs> if Ormond has seen Eternals, but the Celestials could be considered like, godlike. They, you know, create everything that we know and then destroy it if they want to or if they need to. So that is sort of like what a god is supposed to do. So I think definitely we have god-like characters or people who proclaim themselves to be gods. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting point for sure. The, this movie does do a lot of setting up for future MCU projects, including, like Logan has said, Ironheart, but also the Thunderbolts with the whole um, Martin Freeman uh storyline that didn't really go anywhere but it was still there um which happens to include the upcoming um now we know his relationship with what is her name defontaine something defontaine she's leading the thunderbolts <laughs> so thunderbolts is set up here and also secret invasion a little bit um so what were you guys' thoughts on these setups and are you guys excited at all for future MCU projects? About as excited as I usually am for upcoming Marvel stuff because you get all aboard the hype train and then it just kind of plateaus for me even if you really enjoy elements of it in between. But uh, so excited, yes, but also cautiously optimistic. Yeah, me too. I don't know enough details about future projects to know how they're going to be, but the prospect we've seen so far in the reveals and talks about new films and phases, it's a, it's a very exciting thing. Like, for example, spoiler alert, two Avengers movies almost in one entire year. That That's never been done before, right? We've had Marvel movies that are about a year apart with Infinity War and then Endgame the following year, but... Ah, yes. But then seeing... Yeah, and then seeing that again in 2025, that's going to be amazing. That, that being said, like I do think that we often underestimate how... like Marvel does three movies a year on average now. Uh, and I think that we often forget how lucky we were that we got to see both Star Wars trilogies in our lifetime, but two to three years apart. Like, I think it gives you more time to wait 
for the next installment, but I, I am still excited. I don't want that to minimize my cautiously optimistic excitement. That's fair, yes. And as with what we discussed earlier, there's the possibility that because we have two Avengers movies in one year again, it could be rushed. But as with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, I don't think that's going to make it bad. Even if they do rush it, which I don't think they will. But if they do, it's it's not going to make the films worse. It's going to happen, and that'll be it. Yeah. Still exciting. Still can't wait to see it. I I pretty much agree. I think growing up with MCU films and growing up with the constant excitement of like, yes, I get to go see this movie in theaters. Oh my God, this character is coming back in the next film. Oh, they always tease it. Um, are there post-credit scenes? We need to watch the post-credit scenes. So you like wait for like 10 minutes after the movie ends so that you can watch like the 30 second post-credit scene. Yeah, that's a fun time. But <laughs> it ends up being like nothing. Anyways, um, I am very, very excited, particularly for Thunderbolts. Um, it's bringing together all of my favorite sort of riding the line between hero and anti-hero characters like um, Bucky Barnes. Um, Bucky Barnes and Natasha's sister and the villain not villain but the one who's being brainwashed in Black Widow and Defontaine hmm? I, I think the brainwashed character like the one who can like mimic other superheroes or Taskmaster yeah Taskmaster thank you yes that one um potentially others that I'm forgetting about but these are all very very fun characters that I've always really thought were really interesting and they had really interesting backstories and really interesting reasons for why they do things um so thunderbolts is really it, it, one of my most anticipated upcoming mcu projects and i really really hope that they do it well um and the fact that they're setting up it up even more in a movie where you did not expect them to set up projects like Thunderbolts or Secret Invasion you don't expect that and then they do and you're like oh my god oh my god I know what you're direct I know what you're referencing that's so fun um I love that they have little easter eggs in there and I love that people will just like deep dive into here here are 137 easter eggs that we found in Black Panther Wakanda Forever I think it's so fun and I think I, I really like how people are so committed to this universe when it might not be like the best movie you've ever seen. Segway here, best segue on earth. Colonization. Um, this movie <laughs> addresses colonization in a number of very thought provoking, I'll say. Um, and my favorite word today, interesting ways. Do you, we've already kind of talked about it, the way that Namor is first introduced to humanity is through colonization of Central and or South America, um, how we kind of see how the, the ways that Talokan and Wakanda separately developed outside of colonizers' views and um, how they developed um in theory how they how certain countries um could have developed in theory um I think there's another way but I'm forgetting did addressing it in those ways work for you guys or did it maybe not work as well I thought it worked for the most part but I think it mostly worked as a motivation for Namor's character like I don't really think they spent a lot of time on that uh, subplot of you know the idea that when he first came back from the water it's like actual colonialists from they didn't say the country they were from but just colonialists in the i forget what century shows you how uneducated i am uh but the idea that 
that is a motivation for Namor's character. I don't think they spend uh, as much time on it as they could, which is part of what we talked about, about Marvel's rushed, rushed production. But, you know, I understand that you wanted to get to the awful fights and you wanted to be sincere at the same time. So, honestly, I think I answered your question, the idea that colonialism was there, but it wasn't, like, present in the actual themes of the story enough for me to merit it. Yeah, I wasn't sure I understood the first time in the movie they mentioned that word colonizer, and then I understood, and then I thought to myself, I wonder where they're going to go with this. And then I, we figured it out, and it was it was fine. I, I think it worked well. I don't know why it wouldn't work well. To be honest, I think it was perfectly acceptable to use that word i mean it was i think it was appropriate what about what about what about you i think yeah i think the word colonizer is a perfectly acceptable word to use especially when it comes to the atrocities that people have gone through in the world and in history i think it's really <laughs> it's as an indigenous person myself, I think using the word colonizer is perfectly acceptable. And I think it's also really funny as a running joke between Martin Freeman's character and Shuri. Um, I think that's hilarious. And I will continue to be referencing that joke until I die because it's a funny joke. Um, uh, to be entirely clear, I don't think colonizer as a word is bad. I just meant it like as a thematic plot point. It, it was perfectly fine, but not phenomenal. So I think that I might have, I hope I didn't undercut my earlier point. I just meant as it as a theme, not necessarily as a word, because that joke was very funny and it's kind of left over from the first Black Panther movie where she calls them the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. What did you guys think about the movie pitting one indigenous group against another indigenous group? I think it is one of the, I mean, I think it worked for this movie, but as far as something that, if it happens in real life, it's obviously terrible because it's like, you're kind of tricked into accepting your exploitation and fighting each other when you're not, when each other is not really the problem. Uh, so one could maybe make an, the more I think about it, one could probably make the argument that that's what this movie was about. Two, colon two people who have been, who would have been colonized had things turned out differently. Uh, fighting each other only to realize that the colonizers are the problem. That would have been a really interesting, at least more interesting plot for me. Yeah, I, I agree with Logan. The, uh, the mind games that have happened with groups of people in the past, indigenous groups, it's, uh, it's a really harsh reminder that the past, especially wars in the past, are bad, but we're shown that, I think, in the movie, along with mentions of colonialism, because we have to, perhaps they're saying we have to acknowledge that the past was bad to know what was bad about the past and how we need to fix it so it doesn't happen in the present or the future. And I think this did it well. I agree. A point that I think the movie was trying to make that might not have hit for everybody was the past is not behind us. We may think that it's behind us. We may pretend like it didn't happen. And this could even be applied to like Shuri's own personal narrative arc with Killmonger. She might compartmentalize that portion of her life. She might pretend like she's okay. She might pretend like everything's fine and she can handle it and she's good on her own. But you can't ever compartmentalize something that big and you can't ever ignore what has happened to you in the past and you can't ever ignore what has happened in the world in the past because it's something that's really important to acknowledge and to think about and 
to prevent from happening again. And I think maybe that theme was overshadowed by this overarching theme of grief and loss and how to deal with loss, which I think they handled very well. And I think they might've unfortunately sort of had that alternate theme sort of backseated a little bit in order to fully encapsulate their feelings towards particularly Chadwick Boseman, but also um, Shuri's loss of her brother and then her mother and her father <laughs> a couple of years ago. Um, it all sucks and it all, I think it, it, I think everyone in this round table understand and I think but it could have been a little bit confusing for other people who maybe didn't they didn't come to a Black Panther movie to be taught about colonialism you know so it wasn't really maybe it wasn't the first thing on their mind um which is understandable and also an unfortunate side effect of going to an MCU movie and expecting an MCU movie and then walking out of it in tears who did you guys agree with more the Wakandans or the Talokans? The Wakandans, but that's just by design of the narrative, like them framing them as the good guys because they do for the most part. Like they're, they're not jumping to murder this scientist uh, because uh, she made technology that could lead us, lead the surface world to us or whatever. Like I think the Wakandans were justified in the sense that they wouldn't have and shouldn't have murdered the character Riri Williams. Uh, like, I think they were justified in the sense that they shouldn't have gone, like, too far for the sake of keeping themselves safe. Like, other people matter, too, but at the same time, it's a fine line to walk, and I hope I'm explaining this as well as I can. Um, but Wakandans, all the way. I just think they both have their own respective ups and downs. In fact, that got me into thinking uh, a question I'd like to ask, which would be, could you swap the two around and still have the same ending as the one that we got? <laughs> that is a really good question. Um, and the answer is, I don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to think about that one, actually. Um, might circle back to that. We're actually kind of nearing the end of this. But one last question. Well, two questions, actually, and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, since Namor kills Queen Ramonda, um, how do you guys think that that will play out in the first, like the future, excuse me, the future dynamic of the Wakandans and the Telecons? I think it'll certainly make things uh, tenuous, I think is that word, because obviously they'll always have that, Namor will always have that blood on his hands. So I don't think it's like gonna be like super easy to move past it on Wakanda's part. I think it's just like a peaceful ceasefire for now, but at the same time with like, kill my mother, you jerk, if that makes sense. I could see them trick into fighting again, but I could also, see them fighting alongside against uh, a common enemy in either a future film or I think most likely a what if episode but we already have a what if episode about T'Challa so the likelihood of that I don't know if that'll happen yeah I think they definitely made a choice when it came to Namor killing Shuri's mother especially this might have just been me but the subtle flirting potentially between Namor and Shuri, especially, I think maybe this is just, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but he gives Shuri his mother's bracelet and then he has Telokan style garments specifically, I might've misheard this, but made for her when she comes down to visit Telokan. Am I getting that wrong? Maybe that was just like kind of left over. But they also kind of have this back and forth that I feel like might 
lead to something else, which is, uh, I thought it was, hmm, I thought it was interesting. And I thought it could potentially set up a very interesting, a very complicated and I don't know. There's a word that I'm looking for that I just can't find, but it would be a captivating story between Shuri and Namor and a another potential conflict between their two countries. Um, this is the last question. How did you guys feel about the mid credit scene introducing T'Challa's son? Well, I know of that credit scene, but I didn't say to watch it. Sorry, everyone. But uh, I did read about it later, though, so I know it happened. But I watched the entire movie up until the credits. And I think it would... I don't have any thoughts about it. I'll leave it to Ormond, who probably had seen the post credit scene. Well, I'm going to just start with what everyone is expecting me to say, and that is I didn't see it coming. But I want to elaborate by suggesting I really, really want to see a group type development of character in T'Challa's son. Now, I, I don't know if that's a good idea. I just think we saw, we have seen Groot's development from the first Guardians of the Galaxy to the holiday special. We've seen a lot of Groot's life. And if possible, I would like to see that in T'Challa's son. I don't want T'Challa's son to just be there for the sake of shocking the audience. I want to see some, some more involvement. I absolutely agree. I think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting thing to bring up because I don't know if you guys have seen She-Hulk. So spoilers if you haven't seen She-Hulk. Um, I'm so sorry, but there is a point at the end where Hulk brings out his son who we haven't ever seen before have wasn't ever mentioned it seems like he didn't know about him either um and it really was disappointing to not be able to see one of the characters that we've stayed with for so long and seen that character's personal development which will probably continue to grow see him just bring out a teenage son that we've never met before at the end of a TV show that isn't even about him. It's crazy. So I absolutely agree. Having an actual, having the ability to watch this character grow as we move on, because obviously this boy is what, like five now? Um seeing what being able to watch him potentially um grow into what we're probably assuming is eventually going to be either the king or black panther or both um having him take up the mantle of his father in some way um i think it'd be a really really good opportunity for marvel to once again look at the themes of parenthood and what makes a good parent and what makes a responsible parent um and family i think that's all are there any other concluding thoughts that we would like to go over well a very popular actor that's been in a lot of different films mostly because of his family jaden smith and i really want to see this is going to sound real stupid we might even have to cut this part out i have have I've, I've toyed with the idea of having a Jaden Smith universe, and I say that because sometimes I wonder whether or not Jaden Smith actually thought every movie he's ever been in was actually happening. So I want to see that, but with with T'Challa's son, in like five years, he's played by Jaden Smith. And it would just be a really epic, <laughs> it'd be such an epic idea. <laughs> I would love to watch that movie. I would love to watch the documentary that comes out about it. I am delighted by this idea. We're keeping this 
Marvel at us. When, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> the future of storytelling right here. Thank you guys so much for being here and for talking with me about it. Um, this film club has been funded by viewers like you. Thank you. There's just like the like the more you know sort of soundtrack that plays. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly the type of music that should play under this the whole time. That was copyrighted. Oh, yeah, we can we can cut that out. It's fine. <laughs> um all right, I think that's it. You've been listening to Film Club, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people, whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Community Foundation through the 2022 Healthy Communities Arts Culture Play Grant. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth aged 13 to 24 who loves movies and is interested in being a part of our film club, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. Or you can email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. Thanks for listening.